0: Hi, my name is Mark Riggins, and I'm pastor here at LifePoint, located in Plano, Texas, and we meet here every Sunday at 1030, and we're here for your family. I hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Well, good morning, everybody. It's so good to see you. Uh, My name is Mark, and I'm really glad that we get to kind of kick off this series as it's turning from, as we said beginning, it starts off like a tragedy, and it moves toward a Hallmark movie. The thing about the part that that Isaac was kind of teasing out is, this Hallmark movie might be PG-13 though, and that's the part we're going to look at today, so I'm just going to kind of give you that warning as we look at Ruth chapter 3. If you don't have your Bibles, I hope you would just grab one of those pew Bibles and go ahead and find Ruth chapter 3. It's early in the Old Testament. And uh, I hope you'll follow along in the scripture today. This series is called Rerouting because what we realize is when you're driving down the road and all of a sudden you're following the map on your phone and you come and you miss an exit or the exit's closed and all of a sudden on your phone you see this screen, that's one of the most frustrating things in the world, isn't it? And when you're being rerouted, but when the reality is in life, sometimes you're headed a certain way and all of a sudden there's a detour and it feels like you're seeing this screen and that's really really hard to experience, kind of the rerouting of our life. But I thought, you know, the thing that bothers me more than seeing this screen is when I'm traveling down the road and all of a sudden I come up over a hill and I see brake lights and I see that I am about to be in a traffic jam, does that cause anybody else some extra angst? I've got to be honest with you, I am tempted every time in that moment to literally just throw my car in park, turn the engine off and walk out and leave it and donate it to that moment and just kind of walk home. it's just something about sitting still on the road in the midst of, like all of a sudden I have claustrophobia in that moment. And it's the most frustrating thing because all of a sudden I am experiencing that four-letter word that I am being forced to wait. And I do not like to wait. Especially when you didn't know what was gonna happen. You had all these plans and all of a sudden you come over a hill and all of a sudden you're reminded, oh no, you are not in charge. Welcome to the land of wait. I don't know about you, I'm not a big fan of waiting. In fact, how would you finish this sentence? I hate waiting for, and how would you fill in that blank? I I was funny, I asked this on Facebook this week, and the most common answer was the word anything. (laughs) I can totally relate to that. So here's what I want to do. We hadn't planned to do this, but doggone it, we're going to do it anyway. And that is, would you just ask the person beside you, how would you finish this sentence. you got to come up with one thing. In fact, before you do it, let me give you some teasers. Some people said, I I, I don't like waiting for the first cup of coffee in the morning. I don't like waiting on medical reports, or I don't like waiting on my kids to kind of turn things around. Some people said, I don't like to wait on other people's emails or texts. So I'm kind of giving you some teasers, all right? Ask the person beside you, what is it that you hate waiting on the most? Ready, go. Hey, those of you who are watching online, we are so glad that you're here today and we're glad just to be part of your day, wherever you are traveling or even at home. If you wanna just take a minute and answer this by finishing the sentence in the comments, I love reading those later in the day. We're glad that you're here today. All right, let's jump in and let's do this together. Right over here, one person just shout out, what is it that you hate waiting on the most? What is it? No, no, not this section, okay? You don't even wanna wait on your turn, all right? (laughs) hang on a second right here in this section what is it that you hate waiting on the most one person car repair come on hey by the way isaac and shannon i gotta where are they at i gotta pick on them because isaac said their car they were in a, 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 a accident i don't know six months ago they're still waiting on it to get repaired like with all the backlog of car rep- so they appreciate your pain thank you for sharing that all right right here Who said what a while ago? Who was the impatient one? (laughs) Who was it? Go ahead. Yeah, I know. Everybody's pointing at the back. Somebody was at the back. Eloise. Eloise, Now we're calling her out. (laughs) All right. That's good. We got a staff member, impatient. Eloise, what did you say? Food? Food? Oh, like at a restaurant or something like that? Yeah, I'm with you. All right, right here. What do you hate waiting for? Everything here. Everything here. What did you say in the back? commercials uh gotcha I thought he was saying messages to end and I was like well, that's not really the time <laughs> all right right here what did you say <laughs> for medical for the football season to be over with no, to start. oh to start back up I'm with you yeah two weeks after the end of the season we're waiting already and medical tests yes very good all right right here what do you hate waiting for uh, re- yeah a light to turn green are they not getting longer I'm convinced they're getting longer. Uh, Last but not least, I mean, you guys have been so patient as we've been waiting. What do you hate waiting for the most? Somebody on the telephone. Oh, waiting to get a human being on the telephone. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, there's some synergy. Everybody everybody resonates with that one. Uh, Yeah, I mean, the, the reality is we can't avoid this. And so here's the question we're going to start off with today. What do you do when you're forced to wait? That's the way it feels, doesn't it? Because you're not choosing to wait. Every time you call that person, all of a sudden you get that robot. It's like, I didn't choose this robot. Every time we get in a car uh, traffic jam, we're like, no, I didn't choose this. I didn't want this. If there were a quicker way, I would definitely take it. But here I am. It feels like we're forced to wait. And in life, what do you do when you're forced to wait when you you go and you get the education you get the experience but you still don't have a great job and you're waiting cindy as she said that sometimes we have this medical re- uh, test that we're kind of anticipating and we're in that season of waiting we don't get the immediate results like we want or, or maybe you're in a marriage that isn't like you want or maybe you want to be married and you're not and you're in a season of waiting sometimes we're praying and it feels like crickets And we're in a season of waiting. Sometimes our kids are making bad decisions. We're thinking, when are they finally going to figure things out? And we are in a season of waiting. We feel like we're forced there. We didn't want to be there. And the question is, waiting, because it feels like wasted time, what do you do when you're forced to wait? And here's a question I just want to kind of get you to think about. What if time spent waiting actually has a purpose? What if you're there and many of us are there today and in that season of waiting, God has a plan for the waiting. It isn't just I can't wait until the good comes on the other side of waiting and I get what I'm after, or I get what I want. But in the waiting, what if it has a purpose? Maybe you're there and you're grieving the loss of a loved one and you're waiting for the day when the grief is less. But what if in this season, the waiting has a purpose. You see as we look at the story today, the book of Ruth scene 3, Ruth is forced to wait. And she does some specific things and provides us some insights that teach us that waiting has a purpose. And so if you are new with us. What we're doing today is we've been going through this book of Ruth, which only has four chapters, and each week we're taking one of the chapters, and today we're on chapter three. And if you're new to church and you're not sure about the book of Ruth or about this story, I just want to catch you up real quick because you've only missed two weeks, and I'm glad you're here for this week of all weeks, chapter three. You see, we started off the story, and this story doesn't begin once upon a time. Instead, this story began in chapter one by saying, In the times of judges which is a real important caveat to this entire story because basically this meant that it was like the wild, wild west. Like people did what was right in their own eyes, the Bible says. Everything was up and down. There was chaos when it comes to faith. There was chaos when it came to to law. There was chaos when it came to municipalities or governmental authority. And people did what was right. It was in the time of judges, before there were kings, it was like the Wild Wild West. So, this whole story in a season of darkness is going to show a bright light in the time of Judges. And then it begins off in chapter one with all these tragedies that happen. Two ladies in particular, Ruth and Naomi, who we're going to look at today, both lose their husbands. And they're going through grief as they come back to the city of Bethlehem, there in Israel, in mourning. In fact, it changes them. And then we saw in last week in chapter two that Ruth, the main character in the story, she's gleaning in the field. And gleaning just means picking up the leftovers. That God had made a way for those who were widows, those who were poor, those who were vulnerable, they could go to the harvest fields and they could pick up the leftovers that would be left for them. And they would go as a very humble way of living and surviving. And this is what Ruth is left doing. Ruth is going to teach us the answer to our question that we none of us like to be in, but what do you do when you're forced to wait? She's gonna teach us four things today out of chapter three that are just as relevant as they were more than 3,000 years ago when this story occurred. So that's why I hope you have your Bibles today. And I want you to follow along, and we're actually gonna start with the very last verse of chapter two before we jump into chapter three because it really sets the stage. In Ruth chapter two, look with me at the very last verse. Verse 23, and if you've got your Bible, or if you have that pew Bible there, it's page 211 where we pick up the story. The last verse, verse 23 says, so, and say these next two words with me, Ruth stayed. Ah, she's waiting. She's staying in the same place, but watch. She stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. She stays And she's gleaning. We already talked about what gleaning is. It's sort of that picking up the leftovers. And she's the one who's kind of providing for the house. She's the one who's the breadwinner. She's the one who's going out and picking up what was left over so that they can eat. And so she's doing an important job, but she's staying in a menial job. I mean, you're talking about paycheck to paycheck. They're barely getting by. And she keeps showing up day after day. And most people teach that this would have been a a season of months where she's showing up day after day, patiently engaged, simply humbly doing what she's committed to do. In the season of waiting, isn't that the hardest thing to do? Just doing what you know to do. Keep putting the hard hat on day in and day out, doing the right thing. Doesn't feel like it's solving the problem yet, but you keep showing up. And Ruth kept staying at it patiently engaged day after day after day after day and then all of a sudden chapter three comes and mother-in-law Naomi has an idea and it's like one of those moments where somebody goes oh maybe things are about to change and here's where the story starts to get fun Ruth chapter three look with me at verse one one day Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her I got an idea My daughter, I must find a home for you. I know you're barely getting by and we're barely surviving. This isn't thriving yet. We're not where we should be. I want to find a home for you where you will be well provided for. This is funny because we're seeing Naomi differently all of a sudden. She's kind of awakened. Do you remember where we left off with her in chapter one? where she was changed because of her grief. In fact, she said, don't call me Naomi, call me b- for meaning bitter. Like the grief was changing her and she was so overwhelmed and all of a sudden she's kind of awakened here and she's kind of talking, you feel like, with a little better pace, with a little more life, and she's re-engaging in the story. And now she's about to share a plan with Ruth and it's a spicy plan, okay? So look with me at verse 2. We'll pick up in Ruth chapter 3, verse 2, it says. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours, which is a big deal, and we'll learn more about why that's a big deal next week. Tonight, Naomi says, Boaz will be winnowing. You say, what's winnowing? We're going to talk about that in a minute. Barley on the threshing floor. What's a threshing floor? We'll talk about that in a minute. So she says, here's the plan. Here's what I want you to do, daughter-in-law. I want you to wash, go take your bath, put on some perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. It's like get the prom dress out and get ready for the big dance because it's about to be on, right? And what she's saying is it's time to turn the page. Now, if you ever watch a Hallmark movie, and I don't, you'll know that this is about the moment in the Hallmark movie where you're like, oh, I knew this was coming, right? Right? You know, the Hallmark, maybe you kind of know the script, right? In fact, you know the actors and actresses. I think there's three of them. And, <laughs> and here we are in chapter 3. It feels kind of like that. Oh, it's making the turn. We're going from sad to hope, right? There's a moment in this story where she's like, get the dress on and let's get ready. But in the biblical times, this is really important because basically in this moment, What Naomi is saying is, it's time to turn the page from mourning to moving forward, from grieving to moving forward. This is very common because it's King David who later will also be in Scripture having lost his son tragically. He's in a season of mourning. And the Bible specifically says about King David, what Naomi just told Ruth is what King David did. It says, King David, he washed himself and he put on fresh clothes and it indicated that his season of grief was over with and he was going to choose to move forward. And that's what Naomi is suggesting to Ruth here. It's time. We've done our grieving It's important to have seasons. Some of us feel the pressure to kind of move forward. And you may be in this season where it's like, no, I need a season to grieve. It's important to have that. We can't rush it. It's a necessary part of grieving. That's what we talked about in week one. If you missed that, to go back and listen how important it is for the church to teach people to grieve. It's important to heal and to honor the pain that we feel and the loss that we are experiencing. And here, we're seeing that, that, that sometimes in our culture that we are just told to get over it. Ruth isn't getting over it, but she is choosing to move forward. She's ready to move forward and hold the loss and to also move forward. And so Naomi is kind of teaching her, okay, it's time to turn the page. And look at the last part of verse 3. She says, Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. I just want to show you a picture of a threshing floor, because in our day, what we know is that you have the stalks where the kernel of, of wheat or barley would be separated from the stalk. We don't really appreciate one, not so much in an agrarian culture anymore, but also... Everything like this is done mechanically, so threshing floor would be very unfamiliar to most of us, but basically what happened is they would take these large stalks and they would have the oxen walk over it and break it up, and then what they would do is they would take the mixture and kind of throw it in the air, and the wind would blow away the chaff or would blow away the stock, and the kernels, the heavy kernels, would fall to the ground, and it was a way of separating, and that's called winnowing or sifting. And this is the... the, the uh, The threshing floor, which would be a large, hard, open surface that the community shared. And so you would take your pile of grain as a farmer and you would be near this threshing floor and you would have your pile and you would stay the night. This was your wealth for the next year and you would guard it. And when your turn came, then you would use the threshing floor. It's a communal place where uh, communities would come together for harvest time. So it's a big uh, gathering spot in some ways. So, now let me give you the warning. Because now's when the story gets a bit spicy and a little suggestive and provocative. I'm not going to say this is Vegas, but it's kind of close. Look at verse 4 and 5, here we go. Naomi talking to Ruth says, And when Boaz lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And Ruth said, I will do whatever you say. Now, can I just say to parents, this is not dating advice, (laughs) all right? I got three daughters, and I'm not telling them to do this, right? (laughs) Not going to do it uncover his feet and lie down but there there's a lot going on here I mean the truth is it says and he will tell you what to do and I'm like well I'm sure he will yeah in the middle of the night he finds a lady lying down I'm like yeah okay but the book of Hosea tells us that the truth is this threshing floor that a lot of women showed up at the threshing floor with impure motives as these farmers had their wealth and these ladies would show up and you know, they're looking for protection and provision and this was sort of a a gateway to possibly find that protection and that provision. But it does have a bit of Vegas ring to it, right? It, It kind of feels like this idea of what happens at the threshing floor, say it with me, stays at the threshing floor. Yeah, kind of has that vibe to it. I mean, the wealth is on display. The question though is, is Naomi suggesting that Ruth seduce Boaz? Is that what's happening here? Because the original audience, more than 3,000 years ago, as they're reading the story for the first time, they're feeling a lot of tension right now because Ruth was a woman of character. That's been made clear. Boaz has been a man of character. That's been made clear. And yet, this is in a season where people did what was right in their own eyes. And what happened at the threshing floor sometimes was less than pure. And all of a sudden, that's colliding with the character of these two people. What is going on? The tension is building. And what we're getting to decide is, and what Ruth is getting to discover is, what is the character of Boaz? How will he respond in this moment when no one's looking? And he has all the power. How will his character hold up? Now look at verse 6 through 9. And now we get to see how the story unfolds. So she, Ruth, went down to the threshing floor, and she did everything that her mother-in-law told her to do. And when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. And Ruth approached quietly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And in the middle of the night, something startled the man. And he turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. And he said, who are you? I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of my family and the spreading of the garment, the uncovering of the feet, and the spreading of the garment. This is an idiom where basically she is proposing marriage to Boaz. She's lying in the place of the wife, and she is saying, I am basically being vulnerable and proposing marriage to you. It's very clear what Boaz is thinking. He he hears her say, that you are my guardian redeemer which we talked a little bit last week Sean as she walked us through that by the way didn't Sean just do a great job of teaching last week (laughs) and we're going to talk more about the guardian redeemer next week as chapter 4 is really the climax moment of this story and I want you to come back for that but as we look at what's happening here in her transparency in her vulnerability and I would even say in her desperation Ruth is boldly proposing to Boaz, think about this, Ruth is a Moabite which if you remember from chapter 1 and 2 is an enemy of the Israelites, remember they'll be an enemy up to the 10th generation, these are despised historic enemies and she's also a widow which means she's helpless and in that culture even somewhat hopeless and yet she boldly goes to a wealthy man named Boaz and proposes marriage to him. There's some boldness there in this story, in this scene. And I just want to say, when it comes to vulnerability and even desperation, here is a truth that we can learn from Ruth, that faith sometimes requires desperation. If you just want to be around a church, if you just want to do it socially, if you just want to come and experience a little high and then off you go to your real life and you say, I like God but I don't necessarily love him or I don't long for him as we just sang a while ago, you're going to miss out because faith sometimes requires desperation. And I fear in my own life, and I think in our American culture, that sometimes we see a Christianity that's all about being victorious. It's all about being blessed. And we sometimes serve a God who blesses us. But throughout Scripture, we see people clinging to a God who rescues them. There's a desperation to their faith. They weren't looking for just a God who would bless them as we often do. They're looking for a God who would rescue them. And sometimes we've got life just a little too tidy and a little too controlled and a little too at distance with the things that we feel uncomfortable with. And we would rather settle for a God who blesses. I don't want to be in a position where I am desperate. But faith sometimes requires our desperation and Ruth is in that place. It's the only reason she would have been there in that night to perform this act is she's desperate. She's realizing that this opportunity to go and glean is about to end as the harvest season comes to an end and barely getting by and even that's about to end. She finds herself desperate. In fact, desperation being the theme throughout scripture, there's a story in the New Testament that really highlights he was a blind man named Bartimaeus and there was a story of this man in Mark chapter 10 where he is blind and he's desperate. And I want you to see the way people responded to a desperate man and the way Jesus responded to a desperate man. It's in Mark chapter 10. Look what it says. Jesus and his disciples, together with this large crowd, they're walking through. They're leaving a city, and there's a blind man named Bartimaeus, who's, uh, who, who's, which means son of Timaeus. He's sitting by the roadside, and he's begging. It's very undignified, right? And when he heard that it was Jesus, he's blind, he began to shout. I don't care what people think of me, he's shouting, is what he's thinking. And he begins to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's desperate. And in his desperation, watch how the large crowd, perhaps even the disciples, responded to his desperation. It's in verse uh, 48. They rebuked him and they told him to be quiet, be dignified. But he shouted all the more Son of David, have mercy on me! He's desperate. And though they rebuked him, I want you to see when Jesus heard this desperate man, he asked him, What is it you want? And now watch blind Bartimaeus' response down in verse 51. The blind man said to Jesus, Rabbi, I want to see. I just want to see. And when you heal me, you'll be the first person I see. I just want to see. He's desperate. And Jesus said, be quiet, be dignified. No. He said, your faith has healed you. And immediately... He received his sight, and watch what he did. He followed Jesus along the road. Desperation led to his healing. Often, desperation will lead to transformation. And sometimes I think, me, we, in Collin County, we lack this desperation. We might be comfortable enough to miss out on being desperate. And Ruth was desperate. That's why I wanna invite you to come tonight. Because when we come tonight to gather and we just pray together, we aren't coming to like do a program, we aren't coming to try to impress anybody. It's super chill, I mean it's super laid back, it's just us. But what I wanna invite you to do is not only to come tonight because we're gonna pray, we recognize that we are hopeless apart from him, that we need him. But when we come together to pray, we aren't coming together uh, because we're interested or because we're curious. I want to invite you, instead of coming curious, to come hungry, to long for him, to be desperate for him, to recognize how much we need him. And if anything significant is going to happen on this side of heaven, it'll only be because of him. And God, we need you. And so I want to invite you to come tonight and pray with us and to be desperate with us and to prayerfully long for him together. All right, back to the story. I want you to see how it ends, this scene. Ruth chapter 3, we pick it up in verse 10, and now Boaz speaks. Naomi had the plan, Ruth, you know, executed the plan, and now Boaz speaks up. Look at verse 10. He says, Oh, the Lord bless you, my daughter. The kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor, and now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. He has said yes to the proposal. And all the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Don't you love this? The kind of person you want to be with is the kind of person who recognizes the character that you are fighting to maintain. People who don't recognize and value that character aren't the kind of people you want to be with. Boaz recognizes her character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, Boaz says, there is another man who is more closely related than I. And just like a Hallmark movie, there's another dude, right? And we're going to meet him next week, and he's going to play a major part in the story. But here's the bottom line. Do you hear the chapel bells ringing? Right? It's like... Going into the chapel and I'm going to get married. Like it's happening, right? It's on the proposal. He she said, he said, yes, it's going to happen. More about the guardian redeemer next week. But here's how the rest of the night went. Look at verse 13. He said, stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he, this other guardian redeemer who will meet next week, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no, uh, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. And he decides to bless her. And so she did so, and he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town, and when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, she asked, how did it go, my daughter? I have given you this great plan. You do it? And she responded with everything that Boaz had done for her. He gave me these six measures of barley, Ruth said, and he told me, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And Naomi said, good, it's finally over. Everything's going, moving forward. No, she said, wait. Just when you think everything's done and the, you can see the light at the end of the tunnel, there's one more traffic jam as she comes over the hill and she is told that four-letter word that we all hate, wait. Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. Watch this. Because this is the guardian redeemer. This represents God in our life. The man will not rest. While you're waiting, he'll be working. And he will not rest until the matter is settled today. One more red light, one more time to wait, and this is the last time we hear from Ruth or Naomi. The season for them comes to an end on the words of scripture from their conversations, and they're left waiting They're left one more time at a red light in desperation, season of uncertainty and maybe you can relate because maybe that's where you feel like you are today. You're waiting, it's uncertain, there are things in your life that you just can't wait to get the answer on this thing. How's the future gonna go? And you can relate to Ruth who finds herself once again waiting one more time waiting and just when you're tempted to think if I'm waiting here maybe God has forgotten me or maybe I'm just left to fate I love this quote by J.I. Packer where he talks about the providence meaning the the fact that God is on his throne the doctrine of providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind forces it's never about fortune chance luck or fate For those of us who follow Jesus, and if you don't follow Jesus, this is the beauty of resting in his goodness, knowing that he's in charge. Waiting is a courageous thing, isn't it? Boy, it's a hard thing. The truth is, refusing to act before God acts means that I believe someone other than me is ultimately in charge, and it is a discipline and an act of trust. So back to our original question. What do you do? when you're forced to wait I think Ruth gives us four very practical things just in this one scene that are relevant for you and I today things that we can do so that we don't waste the time maybe waiting has a purpose after all four things to do while you're waiting from Ruth herself number one is to rely on God's word this is what she was she was going to glean you know why she was gleaning because God said to do it God said to go back to Bethlehem and God had always provided for the widows through gleaning and so she's simply trusting that God will keep his word. And if you're new to church and you're here and you're thinking, well, I don't know that much about the Bible, I don't know that much about how to rely on God's word, how does that even happen? I just wanna invite you, the best step for you might just be to come back to church, keep coming back because every week we're gonna open this Bible and we're gonna see what it says and we're gonna see how it applies to our life and we get to increasingly rely on the word of God together. If you are a Jesus follower, I would invite you to take another step to actually get into a group, into a Bible study, because we not only want to get to know each other, which is critical in a group, but we also want to spend time in the Word. So over the next few months and years, you will increase your relying on the Word of God. Because the truth is, we know that everything in this life is temporary, but the eternal things are people and His Word. The grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of God endures forever. Secondly, what do you do when you find yourself waiting? Is to get under wise counsel. I am so impressed by Ruth's humility to lean into Naomi and Naomi to give what must have felt like an extreme plan and Ruth to trust it and move forward. I think we are blessed with people who have wise counsel in this room and to be able to borrow from each other who are further down the road so that we can have that wise voice. Here's a way I would define that, is someone who is following Jesus and cares about you, who cares, has your best interest at heart, someone who's following Jesus and cares about you to get under wise counsel. And then third, to trust that God won't rest. This is so hard to believe, isn't it? Because when I'm waiting, I feel like the world is on pause and maybe God is out to lunch or taking a nap. Right, like somehow nothing productive is happening. And what Naomi reminds Ruth about her guardian redeemer is he won't rest until this is settled. That while you're waiting, God is working and he won't rest until this is settled. And to grow in trusting that. And then finally, number four, is to hold nothing. Hold nothing back from God. We sang about a while ago, God, here... Here is all of me, and I'll hold nothing back. If I need to pray some rated-R prayers, I'm going to pray some rated-R prayers. I'm not holding anything back. This is Naomi when she comes and tells Ruth what to do, and Ruth ends up going there to the threshing floor, and she's like, I'm holding nothing back. I am going for it. I am going to be bold. Where are you taking a chance in your relationship with God to hold nothing back? Is there something you're hiding or holding in order while you're waiting I would say to rely on God's word, to get under wise counsel, to trust that He's not resting, and then to hold nothing back from God. Finally, I just love this verse. This is our memory verse for the series, and I think it instructs us on how to wait for, while we're waiting on God. So I'm going to say it once, and I'm going to ask you to say it out loud one time with me. It's Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. It is, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. Why am I waiting? But in all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight even when it feels like you've been rerouted. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Would you say that out loud with me? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. I just want to close with this. Faith, thank you, Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. You guys are on it. Faith sometimes requires desperation. I just want to say if you're like most of us, we want to serve a God who blesses us. But the biblical story is to cling to a God who rescues us. I don't know if you can feel it, but in our nation right now, I believe there is an increased desperation that's going on in the hearts of our community, in the hearts of our nation. I mean, you look at things like COVID that have caused so much division amongst people and so much anxiety in a generation. You look at things like political division, which do we not all have political division fatigue? And there's another election, like, I mean, can we just take a break, right? and as soon as that election ends we start another cycle and there's just fatigue around that. And we, 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 like never before, have a front row seat to a war and just scene after scene after scene and there just becomes so much fatigue attached to all of it and that's not even including what's going on in our real life, right? Day to day the things that are in our family, the things that are in our heart, the dreams that we have, the hopes that we have, the wrestling that we have with God, all the things that we face as real people in a real world there's just so much anxiety, I don't know if you can feel that people are on edge. There's, a, there's, a, there's just a, a tick and everybody can get angry now. Social media can amplify that, everybody has a platform and we're just hearing it over and over. There's so much cynicism, there's so much skepticism, and there's just so much anger. I think, though we can be afraid of where that will lead, I think what it also reveals is there is a hunger in all of us for something more. For someone more. And I think that hunger and that desperation is why we're beginning to see something happen around the country that's just a little bit unique and where it leads, only God knows. But instead of being a skeptic, I want to say, God, do what you want to do. And I'm going to be, I'm going to be guilty of being a fan too early than be a skeptic too early when the Holy Spirit's involved. So I don't know if you've followed what's going on at Asbury College up in Kentucky where we've got this sense of outpouring of the Spirit or revival or whatever term we want to use over the last three weeks. A handful of kids didn't know any better. They stayed and just kept worshiping at the end of a chapel service where there were, the scriptures were being taught. And all of a sudden, some other kids kept coming, and three weeks later, thousands of people were still worshiping. You know why I think that was happening? Uh, Some of us had the privilege of just being crazy enough to drive up there and experience it for ourselves. People are hungry. One student at the end of 10 days, the first 10 days of this outpouring, made this map. This is where people have come from in 10 days, from all over the world, to a little potent town of 6,000 in Kentucky. I think they've got one hotel. And I couldn't get a room there. And more than 20,000 people were there last Sunday. It just overwhelmed the city. They said, hey, we got to move this thing because it's too much. But you know why people are coming there? Believe me, it's not impressive. There isn't anything impressive going on there from a production standpoint. But what I think it reveals, no matter what is going on in reality, no matter what you feel about these kinds of movements of God, here's what it does evidence. People are hungry people are desperate for more they want to know God and they want to experience the presence of God and to increase the awareness of who he is and when there is word that it's happening somewhere people flock and it reveals the desperation and now we're beginning to see these kinds of revivals or outpourings in lots of college campuses Around the country in many different places even here in Texas we're beginning to see some of these college campuses where people are just hanging around because they want to experience the presence of God they want more than what they're experiencing they want more of God the truth is I have a question do you have that kind of longing for him Not do you like him, do you enjoy who he is and how he might bless? But do you have a desperation to cling to him and that you need him, that you long for who he is and long for him? I just say that Ruth, she could have been satisfied to glean out on the edge of the field and just get by for another season. But she decided there's more and I want that. And so she took a risk and she became desperate to take that step. And I don't know about you, but I think there is a temptation in most of us to settle for a gleaning relationship with God. Just take the leftovers. I can go to church occasionally on a Sunday. I can do this thing. I know enough to be content with a little bit I'm getting from Him. But let me ask you something. Is there more? from your relationship with your God than what you're currently experiencing? Do you long for more from Him? Do you long to experience Him in an unfathomable love that He has for you, a transforming love? There's more. And your sovereign God loves you deeply. And He doesn't just like you. He doesn't just forgive you. He is so in love with you that whatever you've done, We shouldn't be so arrogant to think that it can halt his love for us. Oh, he loves you. And he has a plan for us. And tonight, I want to ask you to come back because I don't want us to settle for liking him. We're going to long for him. We don't just want him. We need him. And we come with open hands to say, Father, like Ruth, I want to not just ask for blessings. I cling to you I need you for what you want to do on this earth I have no earthly idea what that might be but I don't want to live another day not all in on who you are and what you're doing and to have full confidence that I'm following you with every bit of my life so I want to pray and then we're going to sing a prayer that allows us to respond in desperation would you pray with me Father, as we come to you today, many of us have the things materially that, that can get us by, that can make life fairly comfortable, but in our soul there is a void that only you, God, can fill. There is a purpose that only you can give And God, I need you. And I come desperately longing for more from you. God, I pray that you would give us that spirit of longing. We don't just want to want you. We want to need you. And become the kind of people who, we don't just walk with you. We are leaning on you. And we are putting our trust and our hope while we wait, knowing that you won't rest and knowing that you are in charge, God, and you're a good, loving God that we can trust no matter what our life looks like right now. And with that heart, God, we just want to, even if it's by faith, we want to sing this prayer to you. Hear our hearts today, God. In Jesus' name. I hope today's message was an encouragement to you. And if you'd like a little more information about our church, just visit us on our website at lifepointplano.org.